Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Tesla was among the worst performing stocks in the S&P 500 last year, falling almost 70% in 2022. To some, Tesla's the poster child for innovation, set to dominate the car industry for years to come. But to others, it's the most egregious example of hype and bravado to emerge from the era of free money. I want to know if 2022 is just a bump in the road or if Tesla has now hit the skids. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is an activist shareholder? Okay, let's get into it. As a general rule, we don't tend to talk about single stocks here so much. But if we're going to make an exception, it's for Tesla because it's one of the most popular stocks with retail investors and had a pretty dire 2022, wouldn't you say, Roman? It's been atrocious. It's fair to say that it's lost a lot of people a lot of money. And that's particularly difficult for Tesla because it really does suck people in to its narrative. And it is a narrative stock. And that tends to make people irrational when it comes to ownership of Tesla. So if we look at the actual returns, it peaked in November of 2021 at a price of around $409. And as we make this video, it's trading at under $110. So we're talking about almost a three quarters fall from its peak value. Now, we've seen a lot of growthy tech stocks fall across 2022, but this is probably the biggest fall. The only one that really comes close to it of a big company, I think, is Meta or Facebook. Yeah, which was another disaster. But there it was pretty much a company that rebranded itself as something new and kind of failed to deliver on that new promise, at least so far. Whereas Tesla, that's not the case really, because it said it was going to make electric cars. It's made electric cars, it's made them profitably, and yet it's still managed to lose 75% of its value. So what I thought was interesting was that most of the growth stocks lost a large part of their value in the first half of 2022 as the market turned around. But Tesla, it did go down, but it didn't really go down quite as much as you might have expected. But then it's had a really atrocious final quarter. And some people are chalking that up to the Twitter deal, which Elon Musk did. So when that closed, you've seen a real sell-off since then. And people are saying, where's the CEO of Tesla? Has he been distracted? I think that's partly because it is a kind of cult of personality that's built around Musk, which has kept the share price so solid. Other growth stocks have managed to, like you say, sell off much more quickly. And to be fair to Musk, he's probably not the first person to let Twitter distract him from his day job. (laughs) But not everybody buys it at a random price, which is set because it's got some joke about marijuana in its number. Yeah, it was $54.20 per share he paid for Twitter at a $44 billion acquisition value. Now, I think it's fair to say he massively overpaid for that. Now, it's not really directly related to Tesla, other than the fact I think it's taken some shine off Musk's cachet and his kind of like magic touch that it's not doing so well. And also, he's had to sell quite a lot of his Tesla stock to sort of plug the gap in Twitter. It was interesting. We kind of had a Christmas discussion about Tesla and the younger people in the room were very keen on him. You know, they style the guy's a genius. This is just part of some overarching strategy. And I said, no, it's not. You just overpaid for it. He's fired half the staff. And advertisers have gone running, which is the big thing there. Their revenue is going to decline quickly. Yeah, the one thing you mustn't do. He's gone a bit crazy on the platform. (laughs) Advertisers want brand safe content, not someone tweeting about conspiracy theories. Or banning journalists because they say something negative. 
the first thing and the most important thing is to ensure that the advertisers are happy with the platform because, you know, you don't want to upset the people who are basically paying your bills. And he's got massive bills because of the debt that he's piled up. But I think you're right that it isn't some grand overarching strategy because I originally thought that. But I think it's more that you often see rich billionaires, you know, buy sports teams, a football team or a baseball team, whatever. And I think Musk doesn't like sports. He likes to tweet. So his equivalent was to buy Twitter and set the rules of the platform. I remember somebody actually said, look, you know, you should buy the company as a joke tweet. And then he actually replied to it. So they're saying, I'm sorry, it was my fault. And I think it's hard to overstate how much it's distracted him this year. So even before the takeover finally closed, he was trying to get out of it for ages and trying to look for loopholes in the deal. He was accusing Twitter of having lied about the number of bots on its platform and misrepresented itself in the deal. But he couldn't find a way out of it and was ultimately forced to close and sell a lot of stock. So just on the 14th of December, he disclosed he'd sold another 3.6 billion of Tesla stock to prop up Twitter. Despite saying he wouldn't, right? Yeah, I mean, he said he wasn't going to sell any more after April. And he sold something like $23 billion worth of Tesla stock this year, which, you know, that in itself starts to move the stock price, right? And it sends out a really bad signal if the CEO is having to sell stock and it's a false sale because he bought a company which he really shouldn't have paid so much for. It takes away that kind of halo effect, which is a large part of the valuation of Tesla. I mean, that's why people were willing to hugely overpay for the stock. I recently watched this documentary about Elon Musk, which is brilliant on the BBC, and it's called The Elon Musk Show. But what's great about it is it kind of goes through the history of his life you know, including his childhood and the companies that he's founded. And it showed the actual time that he floated the stock on the stock exchange, Tesla, and it immediately shot up in value, much more than people expected, more than he expected. I mean, whatever you want to say about Musk, he's definitely one of the greatest capital raisers of all time, which sounds like an insult, but I really don't mean it in that way. Like, we live in a capitalist system, and if you dream big, as Musk does... One of the absolute key roles is to be able to generate a lot of capital quickly and throw it at a problem. And he's better than anyone at that. But I think, you know, if anything, we've learned from this episode that if you have a cult around a stock, it may not be a good basis for buying that stock. OK, so enough about Musk. Let's move on to Tesla itself. We've got the elephant out of the room in a way. Let's talk about the actual car company here. So it announced its fourth quarter earnings yesterday and it missed analyst expectations. So it delivered 405,000 vehicles in that quarter against analyst estimates of 430,000. And that sort of meant that in the whole calendar year, it's delivered around 1.3 million vehicles to customers, which is an increase of 40% from 2021. Now, I think a lot of companies would like to grow at a speed of 40%, right? The trouble (laughs) is that Tesla had said it was going to grow at 50%. Well, they've kind of hedged around that because some of the people who are really keen on Tesla have been saying, well, it's 50% annualized over a long period of time. And it could still make that if it kind of picks up in future. However, I think the big problem is that Elon Musk himself has started saying that, you know, we're entering a period of weak growth. And car purchases are usually cyclical. If people are worried about losing their job or they're struggling to make ends meet because inflation's high, then they're not going to be forking out a huge amount of money for a car, which is very much aimed at the kind of luxury end of the market. I think that's right. For almost the entire history of Tesla's stock, people have always seen the challenge as supply, right? Manufacturing and delivering enough cars to meet the demand from their customers. And that's kind of flipping around now. And people are talking about, well, maybe now the problem is demand. 
So let me just do a comparison, right? And this is kind of personal, but we've just put money down on a car. Well, not money down, but we've agreed a kind of lease ownership of an electric car. And in the UK, we've gone for a Chinese brand, which is MG. So it used to be a UK brand. It was bought by a Chinese company. But the point is that we've got a car which has got a range which is similar to a Model 3 long range Tesla, and it's half the price. And it hasn't got all the features and whistles and bells, but actually it's got some things which I prefer. For example, it's got buttons on the dashboard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all right, granddad. You don't like the big large touch screen in the middle? Well, I don't like kind of having to touch the screen just to change the air conditioning. You know, that's a real pain, especially when you're driving. You still use a BlackBerry with a little keyboard at the bottom. But anyway, look, (laughs) you know, I think it's a pretty good car. It's nicely made. And, you know, it's half the price. I mean, how good can it be? And if they want to sponsor our video, they are more than welcome to. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's the danger of going really high end, which is that there's going to be a huge amount of competition from China, which is very good at manufacturing low cost electronic goods. And an electric car is an electronic good. What's surprising to many people is that the actual overhead, or at least the barrier to entry for this market, is much lower than it is for, say, an internal combustion engine car. For an electric car, you can get fairly off-the-shelf components and stick together a car which works in a fairly short amount of time because you can buy these OEM parts. And there are actually very few working parts which go into one of these engines. And electric motor technology is very well advanced. You know, it's something that's been around for centuries. I mean, I think it's a given that the market will switch to electric vehicles. The question is, who's going to come to dominate that market, right? And Tesla was first out of the gate, really, and did capture a huge market share. So of all the EVs, the electric vehicles sold in the US last year, 65% of them were Teslas. Now, like you say, that is largely at the top end of the market. So they completely dominate the luxury EV market, 86% market share, whereas the non-luxury market, they don't compete in. And it's a real rainbow mix of Fords and Kias and Chevys and Hyundais, right? So they're all sort of (laughs) splitting that. But the question is the trajectory from here. So obviously Tesla's market share will decline over time. That's going to be just natural. And there's some estimations that it's going to drop another 20% by 2025. But the point is competition's coming from two sides, isn't it? So you've got all those traditional car companies trying to catch up. And they're really experiencing the classic disruption problem, I would say, where as they switch from making traditional combustion engines to battery powered cars, you know, they're eating into their existing business model, having to spend a lot of capital, and they've got a lot of debt on the balance sheet. So it's hard for them actually to compete with Tesla. And then you've got the EV only, the new competitors, so Rivian, Lucid, Neo, those kind of companies. And they are behind Tesla really because of just the first mover advantage and, you know, the experience Tesla's built up. So it's, it's an interesting question of who's going to be the biggest competitor. And like you say, maybe it'll come from China. It's just, I think the trade barriers might restrict Chinese cars outside of China over time. It's only taking a long time to put our hands on the car that we've ordered. You know, it's going to be several months before it arrives. And the other question, of course, is the margin that these companies are going to make on their sales. It's interesting. If you look at the valuation video, which is done by Aswath Damodaran, the Dean of Valuation, one of the most important inputs that goes into his valuation model is the margin. And what's interesting is what really drives the margin is the question of what is Tesla? You know, what is the company? Is it just a car company? In which case the margins would be fairly low. Is it a software company? In which case the margins would be incredibly high. 
because part of the value of a Tesla is its self-driving ability or inability, depending on how you see it. But if it does manage to pull off a reliable, and here we're talking about really reliable self-driving function, then you could claim that it's actually a software company in part. So I did look into the margins and in Q3, Tesla's margin was around 28%, which is extremely high for the auto industry. It's roughly double the margin that someone like Ford or GM would have, and it's above Toyota at 19%. The question is whether Tesla will be able to maintain that. So if you think about margin, it's a factor of two things, isn't it? How much you're selling for and how much your costs are. Now we know that Tesla in the last few weeks has started offering chunky discounts on its cars, which it doesn't do very often. So $7,500 discounts in the US and some discounts in China. So that's going to eat into margins. It might be topped up a bit when the Inflation Reduction Act subsidies come in next year. But then on the other side, the costs, commodity costs have gone up this year. So that's the other side of the equation. And another big cost, obviously, is the workforce. Now, what's pretty shocking is that wages haven't fallen despite very aggressive rate hikes by central banks. And what we'd expect to see is at least a slowdown in wage growth. But that's not what we've seen at all. They haven't kept up with inflation. But what you would be expecting is at least a kind of slowing down of wage growth. But, you know, this is effectively going to erode margins as well, because every component has to have staff to assemble it. These are very automated factory floors for things like the Gigafactory and the Tesla manufacturing floor. But still, it does require people. The interesting thing about Tesla versus practically every established car company is that Tesla has a non-unionized workforce, which whatever you think about unions from a bottom line point of view benefits Tesla. One of the issues raised in that documentary I saw on the BBC was that one of their employees at the Gigafactory complained about working conditions. And he got into huge trouble because there's actually a clause in his work contract that says you're not allowed to talk to the press. I mean, I think most employment contracts have something to that effect that you have to go through the company's official channels first. But I know that Elon Musk is famous, isn't he, for driving a kind of culture where everyone is expected to work flat out. And that was true of all those companies, SpaceX included. The interesting thing this year is that they opened the Gigafactory in Berlin and there's been reports of this in, and I quote, total chaos. So it opened in March and they needed to recruit around 12,000 members of staff, apparently, but they were only able to hire about 7,000, partly because of the tight jobs market and competition with, you know, all the other auto manufacturers in Germany. And also because apparently Tesla pay less and they offer non-unionized contracts. So it's like, it's difficult to sort of lure people away in Europe at the moment, I think. And certainly if you work in manufacturing in Germany, I think it's quite a respected job, isn't it? And employees are very dedicated, but they expect in return kind of respect from the company, which perhaps Tesla doesn't offer. So you can see why people in Germany would be much more willing to work for, say, Volkswagen than, say, Tesla, if it doesn't offer those perks. And also in the last few years, they've opened their factory in Shanghai, which has caused a lot of problems actually this year with the zero COVID policy in China, which caused a whole shutdown of the entire factory. And Tesla's actually done well to deliver as many cars as it has, I think, given that this factory was offline for such a long period of time. At least that one is a kind of temporary problem. You know, that's not something which is kind of ongoing. But I think the problem with the German factory is going to be much more long-standing. I think they were complaining about the managers there being inexperienced. Yeah, I read that they lost a lot of managers already. I mean, just to go back to Shanghai, though, it was announced that that factory's again been temporarily shuttered. So I think it is causing a bit of a headache going forward for Tesla. 
So I think one of the really cool things about Tesla has been the profit they make on every car that they manufacture. If you compare it with Toyota, it's much more. So going back to their China manufacturing of Teslas, for the Model 3 and Model Y, they've got huge margins of 39% and 29% respectively. Now this feeds through into a huge difference in profit per car manufactured. So if we look at the profit per vehicle sold, Tesla made around $9,600 per vehicle, while Toyota made only $1,200 per vehicle. It's a stark difference, isn't it, at the moment? But you just think about what that would mean for every car sold. It's just like a huge difference. So if you can just scale up the volume, you're kind of done. Yeah, there's interesting things about Tesla and why they have such a big margin. So one small component of that is Tesla spends zero dollars on marketing. They've never had a marketing budget, which is kind of unprecedented for a company of that size. But I don't think that's sustainable like in the long term. As they run into demand constraints, as they're probably just about to come into now, they're going to have to start reaching out beyond their core early adopter interest groups. And it's interesting that the average spend from regular car makers on marketing is $495, apparently, per vehicle sold. That's incredible, isn't it? If you think of it in terms of the cost of the overall vehicle, that's a pretty big chunk. Yeah, but when it's a high-ticket item and there's a lot of competition in cars, then you need to reach out to potential customers, don't you? And just hammer that message home that our car is the best. Look at this beautiful advert with the car driving along the cliffs in the rain, <laughs> going up through the forest. And until recently, it was pretty cool to have a Tesla. You know, I used to really notice when I saw them on the streets in England. Whereas now you just see so many of them driving around. It's going to get to the point where it's kind of not cool anymore and it's not going to sell itself. It's really hard to maintain a cachet and a coolness, isn't it, when you reach that kind of scale? Like Apple's managed to do it, more or less, but that's kind of one of the only companies, I think. But even they're having trouble, I think, having to sell a really high-end product when there's so much competition. And it's difficult to make the case that it's so much better when other companies innovate technologically and pretty much approach the technical specs of the high-end brands, but for a much lower fee. I think you're right that Tesla's brand has started to dip. There's definitely a risk, I think, with Musk taking such extreme political positions, it appears to me at least, on Twitter. Because I thought their traditional buyer base would be people who are concerned about the environment and want to switch to an EV, like liberals. <laughs> Democrats. Democrats, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> so, well, maybe the overarching strategy of the Twitter deal then is to just appeal to people who are not in that demographic. <laughs> but I don't think that's the case. Well, this is the other argument I've heard about his kind of genius, which is to say the reason why he's kind of lurched to the right in terms of the things he's been saying is in order to kind of court that demographic and it's interesting, there was a study done by Morning Consult, which was reported in the Wall Street Journal recently, which showed that Tesla's net favorability, what do people think of them, among Democrats in the US, fell to an average of positive 10% in November, which was down from 25% the month before. But it rose amongst Republicans from 20% to 27% over the same period. So it's interesting. Maybe there is this shift going on where potentially their customer base is going to broaden out. So perhaps this is just an overarching strategy, you know, moving to Twitter, <laughs> buying it, and then trying to shift his allegiance politically. 4D chess from Mr. Musk. You never know, <laughs> but I doubt it. <laughs> so if we're thinking about some of the long-term risks for Tesla, we've done a few, haven't we? We've said competition is a big one. Margin erosion, that's a big one. Their brand image. Leadership. 
leadership. Obviously, we started <laughs> off with leadership. Goodness me, that's one. <laughs> I think there's a few others which we should touch on. So legal risks, actually, especially when you're pushing the envelope, talking about things like self-driving cars, there's always a risk there. And there have been so many videos recently on Twitter of people driving and putting a dummy, which is toddler-sized, in front of the car, and the car just fails to see it and drives over it. Now, whether that's a realistic test or not, who knows? Probably not, because, you know, if it's some kind of cloth dummy, then its radar signature will be different to a human. Yeah, it's true. You can mow down as many cloth dummies (laughs) as you like. As long as you don't hit my daughter, it's fine. (laughs) But I think the kind of zeitgeist has visibly changed from, oh, isn't this cool? Isn't he incredible? You know, he can put things into space and now he's got this self-driving technology. It's just a matter of time until these things drive themselves. But now it's kind of shifted to, do we really want a car which can drive itself and potentially kill our children? I think people have kind of soured to the prospect of self-driving cars. Oh, interesting. I'm going to disagree with you there. I think it will become a thing and will be the big selling point of cars over the next 50 years. It's interesting that there was a report in Reuters earlier in 2022, which said that Tesla is actually under criminal investigation in the US over its claims that its cars can drive themselves, which you know, it hasn't really delivered on quite yet. But I have been watching videos on YouTube of people who have got the sort of latest beta of the Tesla software on their cars and have just gone out for like drives for now. And I've just sat there watching them and it is kind of creeping incredible <laughs> that it's as good as it is, I think. I saw one brilliant video, which is some kids which actually wanted to go to McDonald's. So they all pile into the Tesla, tell it to go to McDonald's, and it did. It drove them there. <laughs> and they all made it, fortunately. So I think it's possible. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of there, but they have to put all of these caveats out all the time saying you're expected to sit in the car, you have to have your hands on the wheel. Yeah, and the question is going to be when people don't obey that. When they're just sat on the back seat smoking a cigar and their <laughs> car plows into, a, you know, a horse by the side of the road, who's getting the blame? <laughs> so those questions are all going to have to be resolved. And I think other legal questions, the legacy car makers, they have a huge amount of patents around design of cars. And if Tesla got to the position where it was starting to dominate the market, I could see a blowback. And like we've seen in other areas of technology people would become defensive of their patents. It was interesting that Tesla actually sort of open-sourced all its patents early on in its journey. Because we often talk about patents as a way to defend a company's moat, and they just sort of washed their hands of that and said, no, we want electric vehicles to take over. Use them as you will. Another take I've seen on this is that in order for self-driving to work really well, you need to have kind of look-ahead capabilities. So if you do have 5G networks, which are very widespread, then the car can be in continual contact with the 5G network and kind of see what's ahead of it on the road via road cameras or whatever. And if that infrastructure is not there, then it becomes much harder to just do it from LiDAR or some kind of radar image. Interestingly, Tesla doesn't really use LiDAR, does it? It just goes with this camera system. Which is also a kind of controversial decision. Of course, it's not one they have to stick with. But I think this is another one of the risks, which is that for any disruptive company, Somebody else comes along with a technology that simply makes you kind of irrelevant. I think we're a long way off that, though. Like other car companies seem to be playing catch up to Tesla. I don't know. I'm not convinced. I see some of the cars in China, which are pretty high end, and they also have a lot of the features which Teslas have. I think where Tesla does have a genuine advantage right now is in how it manufactures its cars. So over the last couple of years, it's switched to the so-called Gigapress manufacturing process 
where traditionally you'd put a car together by screwing together loads of disparate parts on this long production line and it would be this patchwork, this jigsaw of pieces. Whereas Tesla's moved to the system where it's bought huge, like absolutely enormous manufacturing presses, giant casting machines from an Italian company actually. And they didn't even fit in the Tesla factory. They couldn't get through the doors. So it was out in the parking lot under this big sort of tarpaulin temporarily. And it literally makes cars, the chassis of cars, in the same way that toy cars are made. It takes molten metal, it uses a very complicated industrial process to put it into a die casting machine and out pops, you know, the body of the car, or at least its largest sections. And I read that using this process, Tesla had gone from having to screw together 70 different parts for the underbody of the car to just one part. Yeah, that's right. That was one of the rear panels of the car. I have to admit, and this is kind of embarrassing, but you know, I'm past the point where I'm embarrassed by these things nowadays. I did watch a whole video about the Gigapress machine and I was just blown away. Of course you did, Romin. And you brought Tesla stock the next day, right? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, unfortunately, but well, fortunately, as it turns out. So why is this process revolutionary? Well, it's never been used for cars before. And the claim is that it's going to make higher quality cars in the long term, because Tesla's always had this sort of reputation that as good as it is from an innovation point of view, the build quality of its cars just, you know, is sometimes lacking. So maybe this is going to fix that. Also can make lighter vehicles and a much cheaper cost. So if we're talking about maintaining margins in the long term, maybe it's something like this. And I think it will be quite hard for other legacy manufacturers, say companies in Germany with these big assembly lines of cars with lots of unionized staff. It's hard for them to go, you know what, we're going to go for this gigapress system. There's an article in Inside EVs, which is a magazine, which was talking about this rear section of the Model Y frame, the one with the 70 individual pieces, which were kind of boiled down to one by the gigapress. But what's really interesting is how much that reduces the number of robots on the assembly line. And it actually eliminates 300 robots from the production line. Non-unionised robots. (laughs) (laughs) Which aren't allowed to talk to the press, to the gigapress. Because I sometimes came to Tesla a few years ago and I was thinking, you know, is Musk basically just a sort of snake oil salesman and it's just hype and bravado and really they're just selling cars with a battery in it? But it's this gigapress stuff that I think, oh, they are actually doing something. So there's a nice quote from Musk where he said, design is overrated, manufacturing is underrated. I think he's right. Like you can design beautiful stuff and be able to make a concept car, but can you deliver millions of them each year? And SpaceX is similar. You know, there it's not a question of conceptually, can you build a rocket? Yeah, of course you can. But can you make a rocket which can land itself, which you can turn around for reuse within a fairly short period of time? And that's what they've done incredibly well. And I think you're right. I think with Tesla, it's a very similar story. Focusing on the manufacturing has been why they've potentially created something which has much higher margins than other companies. But look, if you're Volkswagen, you're no stranger to this kind of automotive process and trying to optimise it. You know, they do have a first mover advantage when it comes to the manufacturing process. But it's hard to imagine that German engineers or Chinese engineers won't catch up at a certain point. Yeah, I think that's right. But I've just been in industries and worked in them over the years where you're in a legacy company and you can see what's going to happen. Like I worked in the music industry for record labels. CD sales are declining, Spotify's rising. You know what's going to happen long term. But it's really, really hard to compete because it involves shutting down effectively what is very, very profitable to you in the short term. Yeah, there's a kind of cultural momentum. And this is why companies that start off from scratch probably have an advantage at the moment. Yeah. But then you've also got the kind of battery technology, 
And this is also a strength, I think, of Tesla, which is their batteries are very innovative. They've got the gigafactories, which are manufacturing huge numbers of batteries, not just for themselves, but for other uses. So if you've got solar power on your roof and you want to store it, then you can use one of these Tesla domestic battery packs, which sits on your wall. Or if you've got windmills, which are generating a lot of power, but it's variable, then you can store it in one of these banks of Tesla batteries. And I think that's what the question is really at the heart of this. You know, do I want to invest in Tesla long term? Do I think it's going to grow in value? The question is, is it just a car company, right? Yeah. Or is it also a software company, like you said earlier? Is it also a battery company? And does it have a moat, right? That's the thing we always have to talk about with single stocks. Does it have a moat and is it defensible? So one moat might be this first mover advantage in the gigapress manufacturing process. Another could be this thing you're talking about here, which is kind of an integrated ecosystem, isn't it? You can imagine a lot of customers have a Tesla in the drive, solar panels made by Tesla on the roof. A battery on the wall. Because Elon Musk said that if you imagine a two-car home, so a family with two cars, and they have to get rid of both of their fossil fuel-powered cars and replace them with EVs, effectively that house is going to double its power consumption needs. So you're going to see an uptick in electricity bills and, you know, solar can help with that, right? So if you can sell Tesla as this ecosystem long term, I'm, I'm sounding like, you know, a bull here, aren't I? But that would be, <laughs> I think, the way to, you know, build a company that's not just competing in the global car industry and will gradually see its margins eaten down to 15%. But that was one of the failures, wasn't it? Which is their solar arm, the investment in Solar City. Yeah, and that was a big legal case about that because Musk was on the board of Solar City, wasn't he? And you know, maybe they overpaid, maybe they didn't. And also I think Musk has got weirdly obsessed with this idea of the solar roof where each individual <laughs> roof tile is a solar cell, which is super hard to install and complicated to manufacture rather than just bunging solar panels up anywhere. Anyway, what are the nuances? I think to believe Tesla deserves you know, a crazy valuation is because you think it's going to be able to bring all these technologies online to complement its cars. Well, the one which is really transformative if it happens would be this model where if you've got a car which is fully self-driving, well, you could effectively generate income with that because while you're not using the car, it could be off being used by other people. And what I've actually seen in some electric cars is that's built into their software, not for Tesla, but for other companies, EV companies. I know that Kathy Wood was sold on this idea and yeah. why she was a big investor in Tesla, which because she thought they would come to dominate the robo-taxi industry. And this is how she came up with the price of, I think, $2,000 for Tesla. But if they did crack that market, it would be incredible. Because one of the points about cars is 99% of the time, they don't do anything. They just sit around on our driveways and we don't use them. So having a kind of use-as-you-need-them model, where not everybody needs to own one, you can just order one as you need it, like an Uber, but it would just appear at your door. You know, that's an incredible model. Plus, if you own a car, it's a source of revenue, which is a great thing. For most people, they're just a kind of money sink. Yeah, cars as a service is, you know, the way to pitch that. <laughs> That's right. And I think if one company came to dominate the electric car space, then it would be a bit like what Apple's done with its iPhone, where it's kind of owning that customer relationship and able to effectively charge rent on any app download and all these services. So, you know, Tesla's vision surely has to be something like that, where the car is getting people into the ecosystem and then there's all these sort of add-ons. I think that's going to be difficult to achieve, though, because the problem is that a lot of these components, like the solar panels, the battery, all of them are kind of interchangeable. You know, you can't make a battery which is incompatible with 
your car. Well, you can make a, a bespoke adapter to plug in the charger to your car, which obviously Tesla has. Like, its charger cables will not plug into other cars. No, that's right. <laughs> but look, there's only certain numbers of things which you can do to kind of put obstacles in the way of other manufacturers. So I think some of these components will be interchangeable. And if there is a cheaper alternative, that's ultimately what people will probably go for. I mean, in the short term, people have often said that the so-called supercharger network that Tesla owns is its moat, right? Because the thing with an electric car, it's all well and good getting one that works, but you've got to be able to charge it and you've got to be able to drive it over long distances from time to time. And Tesla superchargers, their proprietary system, make up around 58% of all the fast charging plugs in the US. So that's a big selling point, isn't it? When you think about it, if you're choosing between different electric cars, you think, well, if I go for one that's not a Tesla, I can't use 60% of the charging stations, right, in the US. Right now, at least, there's talk that they're going to open it up to non-Tesla cars next year the White House is getting involved. But still, you know, it's a big deal, isn't it? And as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, actually, they're going to build lots more chargers across the US. So I think that's probably going to change. But as you say, at the moment, a big benefit of owning a Tesla, and one of the reasons why we actually considered one, so our constraints were we had to fit a cockapoo in the back of one. <laughs> you know, Teddy's got to be able to sit in the electric car. Did you take him around the showrooms and just putting him in all the different cars? Well, he did like the Tesla Model Y, actually, yeah. He's bought the snake oil, <laughs> the magic beans. Yeah, he's a Tesla fan dog. <laughs> but in the end, we kind of decided to go against that because most of the time we do very short journeys and we can just charge the car at home overnight. So we probably wouldn't use those chargers away from a home very often at all. It's only if we do a long car trip or go on holiday, say. Yeah. And I think it's just a short-term advantage, that, because I can't imagine regulators would allow in the long-term proprietary networks. Like, you wouldn't have allowed traditional car manufacturers to sort of have their own bespoke petrol and then sort of own all these different petrol stations and then compete on that, I don't think. But again, here's an example where the technology is moving really quickly. So, for example, in China, they've very much gone for a model where you just swap out the battery. You know, you get a pre-charged battery... You drive into this kind of garage thing, and in a few minutes, you just whip out your old battery and stick in a new one. Really? I've not heard about that. It's pretty cool. You know, the other alternative would be contactless charging, where you've got some kind of induction coil in the road, and you just park over it, and it charges your car via an alternating magnetic field, kind of like you do with a mobile phone. And just to wrap up thinking about their potential long-term moats... You mentioned about software and self-driving cars. Like, I think that's a key one, isn't it? If Tesla is getting all this information passed to it, because we know AI systems get trained on data, and the more data, the better. If they've got huge amounts more data coming in for self-driving than other manufacturers, that's a big advantage. That's kind of how Google like, got ahead and couldn't be caught in search, right? Yeah, that's true. You know, Once you've got the first mover advantage, it kind of keeps it in place. However, there must reach a certain point where you've got enough training data so that you can train your neural network to recognise hazards just as well as anyone else. So I think that's, again, a temporary advantage. Because their software is pretty cool. Like They do the over-the-air updates to their cars, which was kind of unheard of, really, when they started doing that. Sounds a banal thing, but it's a big deal, right? It's incredible. I think that's one of the coolest features. Another kind of fun things, you know, like having a ludicrous mode. I think that's great. <laughs> or having a car that can fart on demand. You know, I think that's even cooler if you've got kids. Or a dog. Or a dog, yeah. Teddy would probably think that was hilarious. So I think maybe we just wrap up talking about Tesla as a corporate structure, because Musk was both the CEO and the chairman for a long time. That's always a bad sign. <laughs> it was always a bad sign, unless it's Warren Buffett doing it. 
And he was made to step down as chairman for some tweets. <laughs> the 420 tweet. Yeah, so what was it? Was it the funding secured thing? That's the funding secured, yeah. And the SEC said, right, that's it. You're not chairman anymore. But the thing is, the board, like meant to be an independent board of directors, the people on that, other people who've invested in Elon Musk companies in the past and his brother, you'd always think, oh, does it really matter? It's Elon Musk company ultimately. But I think it does matter, right? This year has been an example of that. Musk's gone off the rails. He started doing crazy stuff. He's got this huge compensation package from Tesla and he's going and spending all his time running Twitter. You'd think a board of directors would be hot on that and saying, what the hell are you doing? But if five of the company's eight non-exec directors have strong ties to Musk, I guess they're not going to say that. (laughs) I like that you're just reading from the article to get your legal facts straight. (laughs) Yeah, please don't sue us. When I was just thinking of that picture of Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live dressed as Wario with the moustache, that's the board of directors (laughs) at Tesla. (laughs) But Kimball, his brother's on the board as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think the board's failed this year as much as Musk has. Because ultimately, it's their job to rein him in. Because they have to act in the interest of the shareholders. Yeah, that's what they do. That should be what they do. That's the point of corporate governance. And they can fire the CEO. That's also the point of the board of directors. In this case, they can't, but yeah. (laughs) And I think that's another good point, which is that at a certain point, we're going to have to think about succession and somebody's going to have to take over from Musk. Imagine how difficult that job would be, but it's going to have to happen. I mean, people have lifetimes and, you know, something could happen to him. Eventually he's going to pass away. And he's also just spread too thinly now, isn't he? So he's trying to get us to Mars. He's trying to revolutionise the car industry. He's trying to implant chips in everyone's brains. He's building this little robot thing. And he's, you know, tweeting mental stuff. (laughs) No one can do all that. (laughs) I think one other problem, an obstacle for car manufacturers is politics. You know, sometimes there'll be an effort on the part of a government to protect its own car industry. So in 2008, who did they bail out? They bailed out a lot of the car companies because if they'd have gone down, it's a big employer of people. And it's also important to national identity, isn't it? Like in Germany, for example, and I think Japan as well, they see themselves as a nation of builders. They've run the car industry for a long time. And we used to see that as one of the sources of national pride in the UK. We used to have a lot of car manufacturers, not so much anymore. No, but I don't see Germany, you know, in a worst case scenario, letting a Volkswagen fail, right? They're not going to say, oh, Teslas, they're just a bit better. They're going to win market share. Let's let Volkswagen go under. They're just not going to do that. No, I agree. I think, but ultimately they can't be protectionist about this because people want Teslas. You know, they really want to own these cars and there'd be a huge outcry if they didn't let them buy them. And the other interesting question, when we're thinking just about the stock price, so it got to, let's be honest, crazy levels, right? Even at the time people were saying it was crazy, in retrospect, it was mental. Musk said it as well. Musk said it was overvalued. Yeah, when it was like much lower than it got to its peak as well. And it was worth more than every other car manufacturer in the world combined, comfortably more. What I loved was when it started falling, people would measure the market cap loss in Toyotas. Not cars, but the market cap of Toyotas. The whole company. (laughs) (laughs) But the question here is around macroeconomics. So we've talked so many times about we've left this zero interest rate environment. Free money is over. Could we ever go back to those crazy multiples, which allowed Tesla to be worth so much? I think the thing about Tesla is that it's very much driven by a cult of followers. And it's not so much to do with interest rates as that belief. And I think we've seen that belief being shaken. It's only the very hardcore Tesla believers which have stuck to their guns and suffered big losses. 
So I think as long as that kind of core of believers exists, there's a potential for another run-up. But the thing is, if you do have interest rates at much higher rates, that kind of euphoria is much harder to whip up. So I do think it's going to be an uphill battle. I don't think that we're going to go back to crazy multiples anytime soon. And particularly if there's going to be a recession globally, then there'll be weak demand for Tesla and even worse numbers in future. The thing they have in their favour in an environment where interest rates are going up is that they have a strong balance sheet. They've got a big cash pile. They have basically no debt. They're not at risk financially. They're far away from that. It's just they were massively overvalued. Or at least they were baking in a huge amount of growth, which is going to be hard to deliver on. So I don't think it's an existential threat for Tesla. It's still going to be around. It'll just be another car company. That's the big risk. And other companies innovate much faster than it does. And it kind of gets left behind. So finally, Roman, we've talked about Tesla a lot. Would you buy the stock? It's trading at, what is it, roughly 110? You know, I think if the multiple got low enough, I think I might consider it. But it's still baking in a lot of good news, even at this price. And I'd really like to see what happens with its margins, but also with its penetration of the market, you know, in two, three, four years time. As all of these new innovative companies come along and try and compete with it, you know, it got ahead of the pack and its valuation was kind of crazy. Now we've seen it come back to kind of sane valuations. But at the moment, I certainly wouldn't buy the stock, I don't think. But don't you think that by the time it appears that it's going to be the apple of cars and dominate the industry with huge margins, it's too late, right? The stock will have looked ahead. Yeah, I guess a bit more transparency would be nice. And, you know, this is why I don't buy single stocks, right? (laughs) Now, Tesla is actually a source of a lot of discussion in our Slack channel when we talk about single stocks, which we do sometimes. And shout out to Thomas on the Pentacraft community, because he's been really helpful in preparing this episode. And I don't think he'd mind me saying, is a big Tesla bull. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. But if you want to join us and join the discussion, and you want to learn more about joining Pensioncraft the community, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is an activist shareholder? Now, one of the deals with a stock is that you actually get a say in how the companies run. And the more shares you own, the bigger the say you get, which makes sense because you, in a very real sense, own the company. Now, an activist investor builds up usually a pretty big stake, and they're very active at the shareholder meetings. They try to put pressure on the company to act more in the interests of the shareholders. And sometimes it's very unpalatable what they decide they want the company to do. So I think what we commonly see in the press about activist investors is, yeah, they start building up a share in the company, sometimes quite a small share, actually, and then they try and get seats on the board or even take over the whole board. And you think, well, how can they do that when there's an existing board of directors there? Well, they kind of put up their own candidates, don't they, and try and get all the other shareholders to vote for them and sort of take over and then implement their plans. Now, as long as it works in the interest of all the shareholders, that's not necessarily a problem. I guess there could be problems here because if they're just acting in their own interests, then that's not going to be ideal. Yeah, true. But they do have to win a kind of majority vote, basically, to get seats on the board. That's right. I mean, the weird thing about these contests where there's this kind of election process going on is that the management, the existing board, they set the rules for the contest, right? So they can come up with these crazy rules (laughs) to try and like rig the game in their favor. The other thing I found interesting was that some people say that the big institutional investors, the pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds, when they want to influence a company, improve its margins, 
push it towards ESG criteria, whatever it might be, rather than just going and sort of demanding changes themselves and using their heft, they don't necessarily want to do that because they don't want to be seen as the bad guy fighting management. So they would maybe get an activist shareholder with a smaller stake to do it for them. But behind the scenes, they're giving money, right, to the activists. They have shares in the activist hedge fund. Surely not legal. I think it is legal. (laughs) And interestingly, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in America, kind of changed the rules around activist investors in September last year. Okay, so previously the state of play was that if an activist wanted to shake up the board by nominating fresh directors, these elections forced shareholders to vote for a slate of the company's nominees or those of the activists. Yeah, so it was like, do you want my list of 10 people or do you want their list of 10 people? That's a hard one to win, isn't it? Because there may be some people who are on the existing board who you really want to keep. And now we've got a system called a universal proxy ballot card which gives shareholders a chance to pick nominees from all parties. So you can kind of take the best from the full list of candidates. Yeah, we've gone to an a la carte menu. But there's actually been a pushback, hasn't there? So the companies are fighting back. Oh, the companies always fight back because the management wants to stay on the board, right? They're paid for it. Like, it's fun (laughs) to run a big company. (laughs) And they think they're the best people to do it. Yeah, because it's like, sometimes the grass is always greener, right? You look in from the outside, you think, oh, that company, I could run it so much better. But then you buy Twitter and you realise that (laughs) there's a reason it's hard to monetize a social network. (laughs) The thing with activist investors is they often get a bad rep, don't they? Like people say, oh, they're trying to take over companies and... Well, just think of any meeting you had at work where there's one guy or woman that always pipes up and you just roll your eyes whenever they start speaking. Activist investors are a little bit like that person. But they do provide a vital function because especially in a world where there's such big passive investing... You do need someone out there holding management to account and trying to keep them honest and running the company in the interest of the shareholders who are sitting on their hands. Yeah, true. You know, just because someone's annoying doesn't mean they're not valuable, like Elon Musk. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.